Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a book, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. Day Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it when life and on the air. Good morning, everyone. This is Fran Lewis. This is MJ Network. MJ Network, in memory of my sister, Marsha Joyce, and this is going to be so cool. When Manhattan architect Archer Landis let himself into Julia's apartment, you wouldn't believe what he found. It was dark. He strode down the short entranceway to the living room and felt for the light switch. And what he finds was that Julia has been killed. And that's all I'm going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you anymore. The author of Architect of Courage is here, Victoria Weisfeld. And welcome to MJ Network. This is really oh, cool. Oh, thank you so much, Fran. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to so be here. Why well, give us a short summary because basically when I was looking at Amazon, the short summary didn't, didn't say enough. And tell us why on architecture, which I love a lot. Well, um, as you point out at the very beginning of the book, he finds the body of one of his associates with whom yeah. he's been having an affair. And um, he's really thrown by all the guilt involved with that and um, doesn't let the police know. So uh, to summarize what happens through the rest of the book, these kinds of terrible calamities keep occurring to him, and they're threatening both his life, the lives of the people that he loves and cares about, and his big uh, architectural business. So everything that he holds dear is seems to be in peril, and he doesn't understand where these threats are coming from. Mm. And the police help, you know, with the murder investigation, but they're, they are as baffled as he is. So it's a question of uh, having the courage to sort of work through all that. Wow. That, that is rough. So how did how did he create so many different projects, God, in different sites? And what type of projects does he undertake? I felt like I was going through my God every time he he does something. Well, um, he has a successful architectural firm. Um, he has a small office in Manhattan and a much larger office in White Plains, offices in uh, Miami, Chicago, and Los Angeles, and a small one in Dubai. So he really manages this international company, and there are architecture professionals at uh, each of those offices that uh, compete for projects and try to um, uh, remain at the top of their profession. So he has a really sort of a big enterprise that he's in charge of. He can't just lay back and say, I I need to solve this murder because there's too much going on all the time. I know, it's scary. So tell us about his staff and their roles, and who is Julia? Um, In every office, he has uh, managers who, of course, are the most senior people, and uh, whom the other people in the office report to. He has project leaders for each project, and they keep it on track. And then there's a group of young up-and-coming architects who um, use the experience of working in a big firm like that to as kind of an apprenticeship and to learn how to uh, do specific uh, tasks and and contribute their own uh, talents and interests. Because even though uh, most architects use CAD now, computer-assisted design, they have a lot of detail to keep track of, a lot of negotiating with um, uh, 
uh, unions and the people that are actually doing the construction once a project breaks ground. So uh, a, constructing a big skyscraper is a complicated and um, mm. uh, multifaceted enterprise. And the, he has all these talented people. Julia is a relatively new hire, the the woman who dies on the first page of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but she uh, is, is an extremely talented architect, and he comes to rely on her. And there are two other people in the New York, the Manhattan office, whom he relies on a lot, a man named Ty Geller and another mm-hmm. one named Charleston Lee. And they have different personalities and different training, and they run into different types of difficulties as the story progresses. I know. This is interesting. So that very first scene from the first page, somebody walks into an apartment, and they see somebody is dead. Why He didn't report it. How did they learn that she was murdered, and how did they handle it? Because he took a hike. Not that I blame him in a sense, but he took a hike. Yeah. Um, well, when I started the book, um, all I had was that that idea of someone going to their mistress's apartment and finding her shot to death. And uh, you will recall, since you read the book carefully, that the story takes place in the summer leading up to Mm -hmm. the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And that was a very sort of um, tense summer for the authorities. I mean, maybe the public wasn't as conscious of it, but the the, uh, police and the um, FBI and everyone were very much on alert and worried that there might be some sort of copycat uh, type thing to mark the anniversary, and so they were very alert to any sign of terrorism. So that's kind of the background of uh, how the story plays out, because when Julia... Um, they find out more information about Julia and who she really was, they immediately default to terrorism. And so um, I knew at the time that I wanted to show that um, these sort of blanket uh, prejudices against people are not uh, very constructive and that it was dangerous. Um, misguided, at least, you could say. And I didn't mm-hmm. set out to write a book about prejudice. And, in fact, the word prejudice never appears in the book. Mm. But in various guises, it crops up time after time, uh, always to the detriment of the people involved. So, well, the, um, I, mm-hmm, go ahead. Go on. Um so, Julia, you asked who she was. She was a young yeah. architect with a lot of training who has tremendous promise and came to work for uh, Landis and Porter, the architecture firm, about eight months before the novel begins. Now, he he panicked when he found her dead. He felt guilty. Mm. He didn't want his wife to find out that he had been there when he was supposed to be somewhere else. He didn't want his other associates in the office to find out because it would sort of undermine their their confidence in him to think that one person in the office was treated so differently than the rest of them. And quite frankly, I think he was a bit in a state of shock. And so he plans to call the police and let them know but he Mm. doesn't, in the event, he doesn't do it. And the next day, when Julia doesn't show up in the office and they can't Mm. reach her by phone, he sends one one of his trusted associates Mm -hmm. over to her apartment. She lives just a few blocks from their office in the Flatiron District. And he discovers the body and calls the police, and that uh, then everything happens from there. I know that was kind of rotten that he did that, too, (laughs) that he sent him over there. Yeah, well, he hated to do it, but 
he couldn't he couldn't stand the thought that she was there and no one was investigating what happened to her and so forth. So when he learns Julia's dead, how do they find out who she really is? And who she was and how did how did he get fooled? That was that was really amazing. She's pretty smart. Well, she changed her name. Yeah. And um she must have uh called um her university and told them to only use her new name. But the the police discovered this actually rather easily because they um to be an architect you have to uh take certain tests and file a lot of paperwork and so forth and they looked they looked at her paperwork to see what she had from from the state um accrediting body and discovered there was a name change form attached to it so that's how they discovered that little bit and then uh once they knew that um she was a a different person they were they were kind of tipped off because uh Landis had mentioned to them that there was a very valuable painting in Julia's apartment um and that you know the apartment was empty and people were coming and going and it was empty of people and they um no one was living there and uh they got the painting, which she claimed was a Velasquez, and looked into it and discovered it was a fake. So at that point, they were looking at her a little bit um, askance and investigated a little more thoroughly than they might have otherwise. Mm. So what project was taken away now? His son really got me upset. What was the problem with he uh, with him working with his father? Well, Landis and his son Hawk had an uneasy father-son relationship for a long time, um, and that wasn't helped by the son's drug abuse and mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we mentioned a little bit about his suicide attempts and so forth, but like many sons of very successful fathers, it was hard for Hawk to get out from under his father's shadow. That's a very uh, common situation. And it was to Hawk's detriment. Well, tell us about Marjorie. and who Who else gets killed in this office? This office isn't exactly the best place to go. Um, well, you know, I don't want to go into too many of the details no, about don't tell the way that the yet. plot goes forth. But Marjorie, um, Landis's wife, um, whom he loves, uh, grew up in the super wealthy community of Greenwich, Connecticut. And mm. uh, even though Landis developed an extremely successful career, her marriage to him was always looked down upon a little bit by her family. They considered him mm. an outsider. Uh, Marjorie is elegant and she's intelligent and she's been managing a big project herself. Uh, she's been organizing a huge banquet for an international conference on peace and understanding, um, mm. which is focused somewhat on the ongoing frictions in the Middle East. And so she's been, like, totally preoccupied by by this work, and it's important work. And um, so, you know, maybe Landis was feeling a little bit neglected or, or whatever, but um, he wants her to go with him on a trip, and she's reluctant to do it. She really wants to... Uh, carve out her own path here. A lot of people are like that, and then they get blindsided by their own negligence, and they don't realize what's, what's happening with the other person. That's really mm-hmm. sad. Mm-hmm. It's real life, people. That's what makes this real. So <laughs> who handles the investigation? And tell us about Carlos, poor Carlos. Uh, uh, Detective Ed Fowler and his partner, mm-hmm. Lou Gennaro, handle the investigation for the NYPD. Mm-hmm. So they are the first ones 
to talk to Landis and so forth after Julia dies. And they continue, but when Julia's background is discovered and uh, they start thinking maybe this is a terrorism plot uh, with someone trying to get herself on the inside of a big, important architectural firm to find out which buildings are susceptible to bombing and so forth. Um, Once they start to have those kind of suspicions, um, they have to bring in the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which New York has, and Mm. that includes the FBI and other entities. So there's a lot of um, police authorities who are interested in uh, what's going on in Landis's office, and and he's he he's worried about it because he thinks it'll be bad for business and discouraging to people. Um, Carlos is works for Landis's lawyer, Cole Mohanlon, and Carlos is an investigator in a, in a law firm, and he um, it's clear as the story evolves that he's had quite a bit of weapons training and maybe he has a military background, but he knows a lot about security and um, he helps Landis manage some of the physical threats to him. Mm. He's uh, he's very, he looks like a jock and he's also super smart and there, it's interesting that you asked about him because um, quite a few mm-hmm. readers have told me, I'd like to hear more about Carlos. They yeah. they liked him. Mm-hmm. Me too. So then we've got, I'll tell you something, Landis is not a dull guy. He's like, you know, just goes about whatever he's going to have to do. So why does he go to Brussels? And what was his objective? Because what project was, was he still trying to get back? Because he lost something. Because it, of, not because the of Brussels somebody else. project, though. Mm-hmm. No, he lost a uh, project in Dubai. But um, the Brussels project is a redesign of the Schumann train station, which is a real-life station mm. on the main um, subway line. And it's a it's a complicated station because it's one of those where train and subway and bus and all come together in one place. Um, and... Landis and Porter that has been designing a new train station there to replace the existing one. Uh, it's in the middle of the EU headquarters uh, buildings, and it would be a prime terrorism target. So he's got he's been sensitized to this issue by everything that's been going on and and the sort of sly accusations that the. FBI and others have been making. So he mm. decides he wants to check it out himself. He wants to see the neighborhood. He wants to see the access points. He's just being really extra vigilant. Coincidentally, and this mm. is a real-life event, showing what a vulnerable target this station was, mm-hmm. uh, several years after I wrote about it, the next station on the line was, in fact, a terrorism target in, in real life. So uh, bombers put a bomb in the in that other station. So this was a, an important activity for him, and he also, I think, at that point, just needed to get away a little bit. It's frightening. I mean, I listen to the news and I watch the New York subway. I don't go on the trains at all. They're not safe for what's happening. People getting mugged, people getting shot, people getting hit. It's scary. Just public transportation alone, um, school safety is is a primary issue, and nobody's really addressing it the right way. So what happens when he meets Mert, Mert, and why the meeting? Well, um, Mert, uh, it's a Dutch Dutch name, I guess, um, works for the Ministry of Transportation in Mm. Belgium, and so he's sort of the liaison with the big project that they're doing, because this uh, Schumann Station redesign is actually a multi-part project. They're also building a new tunnel out to the airport and and so on and so forth. And Mir um, 
is kind of the go-between between um, Landis's firm and the state official, the co- country officials. That's scary. So what? When his receptionist tells him that Charleston Lee is there to see him, how does he react, and how come Mirt follows him? Well, uh, Charleston is the uh, Landis's staff head on the um, Schumann Station project, mm-hmm. and he initially seemed reluctant for Landis to go to Brussels, and Landis wondered if there was something that wasn't really quite going very well that he he wanted to work out before Landis found out about it. He just he didn't know. And um, Lee um, comes to Brussels to join him in some of these meetings, apparently, but then doesn't get in touch again. It's all very kind of strange, and uh, Landis mm. really doesn't know the, many of the details until he has a chance to talk to Charleston himself back in the office in New York. He's just sort of puzzled by this. This is one of the many mysterious things going on that he he can't just figure out. Um, and uh, he doesn't know why Mirt followed him, but it does help him to convince him to change his hotel, which yeah. was uh, important, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, he realizes he has to change his hotel, but it's almost as if Landis is a murder magnet. <laughs> so murder seems to be following him no matter what he does. Yeah, I think he's understandably anxious by all uh, by all this and looking for whatever help he can get, but the authorities don't seem terribly helpful. That's the problem today. The police don't take everything seriously. Yet if it's somebody in the police force, any kind of law enforcement, they tend to take it more seriously, which is really sad for what's happening in the news. It, it's frightening. So what happens when he returns to his apartment? How does he know that somebody's after him? Um, Well, later in the story, he comes back Mm -hmm. to his apartment and finds it's been broken into. So as you had mentioned, um, his office had become a place where um, it had a lot of negative memories at that point yeah. because there's been a lot of confrontations and a lot of uh, uh, difficulties had occurred there. But his apartment had always been sort of free of that. Well, now, uh, and this is later on, uh, he comes back and discovers that someone has broken in there and they tried to steal that fake painting um, of Julius, mm-hmm. so this makes him know that the break-in was connected in some way to the situation with Julia, but of course he doesn't really know why or what, and anyway, the painting was a fake, so why bother with it, but somebody did. Somebody thought it was important, there must have been a reason, but we're not going to tell them why. So the the main thing is that the security system project, what was his purpose, and why did he put Ty in charge? I like Ty. Uh, well, you know, this is a case of uh, turning lemons into lemonade. I mean, it was <laughs> awful to have his um, firm looked at as maybe giving secrets to terrorists and so forth. Mm. He really was... He thought he'd better take that seriously, and instead of just bemoaning it, he decided that his firm would make a specialty out of secure design. Um, there's a lot of um, information out there about about that. You know, I have guidelines from the NYPD that's 103 mm-hmm. pages long, but they want to go above and beyond. Yeah, they want to go above and beyond what um, the, the sort of the minimum of making something secure. And so he thinks that really pulling together a team with people with different expertise across his firm um, is a good way 
to to do it and they sh- their first job should be to evaluate all the projects they have ongoing and what are the security considerations there and help the people who are directly responsible for those projects um, build a stronger security system in and so forth. And he puts Ty in charge because Ty is one mm-hmm. of his chief uh, associates whom he has a lot of confidence in. Ty is a very capable person, but he's not a really good people manager, and that's something mm. that he needs to work on. He's a little too brash. He's a little too too tempted to tell people how they should do it rather than working on a problem with them or alongside them. So it's going to be a learning experience for him, too. But he does put together a really interesting team, uh, including the two people he recruits for. One is a a psychologist, actually. She's not an architect. And Mm -hmm. she has looked at um, how design vulnerabilities, uh, the, the psychology of design that makes certain buildings or certain approaches look more vulnerable. It includes a guy who worked for the General Services Administration uh, in the federal government, which, you know, the federal government owns hundreds and hundreds of buildings all around the country, and a lot of times they redesign them. So this is um, for... Uh, he has a lot of experience in taking an existing structure, redesigning it to be better. And then um, they bring in a landscape architect from mm. um, from the Chicago office. Now, at the time that I was re- working on that part of the book, uh, the U.S. was, in real life, building a new embassy in uh, London. And mm-hmm. they designed it so that rather than put up big bollards everywhere so that that trucks couldn't get close to it, they used a lot of water features and so forth as a way of blocking. It was more architects have to balance the need for security with the need to look open and inviting, especially in a government building, especially in something like an embassy. So um, that's a that's a difficult problem that needs to be thought through and and uh we've all seen government buildings that look so forbidding that who would want to even go there um mm. and they want to avoid that they want to make them look a pleasant place to work and to visit and so forth but not for somebody who is intent on doing harm I don't blame them. And some doctor's offices I don't like going into, and some other offices are, like, foreboding just when you look at them outside and go, like, I'm not going in there. Oh, God. And then you right, wonder what right. kind of people are working there. So then right. we meet Julia's parents come. What are their backgrounds, and why do they live in the States? And how do they, well, how do they feel when they find out that she's gone? Well, um, they're heartbroken that she's gone, and that comes through, uh, obviously, when they come visit. And they mm-hmm. visit in order to um, go through her apartment and to take uh, anything of hers that they want, which turns out to be almost nothing because mm-hmm. they just can't deal with it. Um, but they they are immigrants. Um, they've made a successful life in the United States, they come from countries that are often at odds with each other, um, which prevented them from being able to live in either country. And they are just as baffled as Landis is about why Julia took on the fake identity that she did. And they um, have this opportunity to also meet with Detective Fowler and find out the the state of the investigation, which is basically nowhere. Um, mm-hmm. But they couldn't have found a happy life in either of their home countries because of the prejudice against uh, their spouse's nationality. And so this is one of the examples of prejudice that's in the story. There's a lot of it in the world, and that's just really scary. 
people just don't like people for whatever nationality, whatever religion. Sometimes they don't like people just because of the way they look. And that that makes me crazy. Mm-hmm. I, I think prejudice and racism are the worst. That's that's the worst. And obviously, this country then there's a lot of it, unfortunately. So, who is Tamara, and what does she reveal about reveal about her daughter and Julia? Tamara Dagan is uh, one of the people that Marjorie has invited to the Peace and Understanding Conference. Mm. And uh, Marjorie is working on her table feedings at home uh, one night, and Landis sees her name on the gala seating chart, and he recognizes it. Uh, Tamara was part of a faculty advisor group for a project that his firm did for the University of the Negev, and he liked her. She had a very outspoken manner, and she tended to uh, speak up in the beginning of a project rather than wait until everything was set in stone and then start to raise a lot of objections. So he he liked her way of working. Um, And Tamara happens to be um, Julia's aunt. So when Julia wanted to... uh, was going to graduate from uh, her university and was going to be looking for a job. Tamara had liked working with Arch as well, so she gave him um, the name. But but Julia asked her not to reach out, not to to tell him that um, they were related. So he doesn't know Tamara is, was related to Julia until he meets her again at the after the gala. Fran? Well, as long as um, Fran is offline for a moment, I'll also say that not only does um, Landis go to Brussels, but also in the tri- later on in the story, he goes to Tarifa, Spain, which was fun to write about because it's uh, I, I've been there. Um, it's on the uh, Mediterranean coast, just uh, just a short boat ride away from Morocco, and it's uh, a sort of a tourist place. There's a lot of windsurfing and so forth there. So there are um, jobs, restaurant jobs and uh, windsurfing rentals and ice cream sales and everything on the beach for people who are sort of marginal employees. And he go- he goes there um, uh, be- on personal business to try to find someone who can answer, he thinks might be there, who could answer some of his many questions about Julia. And luckily for him, he took Carlos with him. Carlos speaks Spanish and um, is intent on making sure that their hotel room is secure. And, um, the, and can you hear me now? Of, yes. Can you hear uh-huh. me now? I couldn't hear you for all this time. I just called in on my cell phone. There's something wrong with the sound from the station, so I don't oh, know where we I, were. This is—I've been uh, saying I can't, I, I'm so glad I called in on my cell phone. So go on. I can yes, hear you I now. couldn't hear you at all. Um, so that's it. I don't know what happened with Blog Talk. Thank God my cell phone is working, because the station—I don't know what happened. But I can hear you now. Okay. Well, I don't know if your listeners were hearing me all that time. I don't know, but, me either. But uh, I moved on to talk about um, Landis's trip to Spain. And mm-hmm. he goes there to search for someone who might be able to give him some information about Julia. He has reason to believe they're there because there are still many mysteries about her and why she did what she did. And um, he did love her, and he wants answers to that. So um, when he traveled to Spain, this was a, obviously a personal uh, mm. personal visit rather than a business visit. So he didn't have all the kind of contacts and people to speak with that he had in Brussels. But 
luckily, uh, he took Carlos with him, and Carlos speaks Spanish and was determined to make sure that their hotel room was as safe as it could possibly be. Um, Carlos does a great job showing Landis how his various mm-hmm. security strategies work, which is a little tricky in a hotel room, but very educational mm-hmm. for Landis. Um, and I've, as I said, I've been to Tarifa, so I know it is mm-hmm. a young people's resort type town. It's uh, only a boat ride from Morocco. So it has a lot of Moroccan young people working in the restaurants, uh, renting windsurfing equipment, uh, providing beach services. These are really marginal jobs, but but they're ones that a young person can do. They're living with a bunch of other guys usually. So even though I had a general idea about the south of Spain from having visited, I did use Google Maps to understand mm-hmm. the lay of the little town and what the different neighborhoods were like uh, and where someone uh, they were more likely to find some the kind of person they were looking for. I also used uh, Google mm-hmm. Images to get mm-hmm. to see street scenes and the like. And one one particular view that I describe in the book, which is out over the rooftops. Uh, from the patio outside their hotel mm-hmm. room, um, and where I talk about there's the laundry on the, the drying on the roof and so forth. That was prompt, that image was prompted by uh, a photo that was on Google Images, so it was very useful just to sort of be reminded of what what all is there and where the different parts of town are so that it, may, it would make sense to someone who was there. You know, it's very mm-hmm. jarring to to read a, a story about some place you've been and some detail is wrong. It's sort of like, that isn't on the side of that building. It's across town. And those kind of mistakes are take the reader out of the story and um, uh, are dis- disturb the, cre- the creative thing that's going on in their mind. So um, I did try very hard to make all that accurate. The, um, the Brussels stuff, the New York environment. Of course, I live fairly close to New York and I'm there quite often, mm-hmm. so that was easier in a way, but... Um, you know, I'm usually a pedestrian, so which one-way street runs which way and so forth. Mm. All, all that you have to kind of keep straight. And also recall that this is 2011, and sometimes this takes place in 2011. So sometimes mm. things change over time. New buildings are built and so forth. So going back and looking at it today is... Mm. Uh, helpful but it's not a hundred percent guarantee that you're recreating a space of a decade ago before i forget on tuesday new york times author that took over the jason Bourne series brian freeman will be there with i remember you on the 8th this is going to be fun it's a medical show with dr jeffrey jacobson and Jeff, Dr. Jackson and I are going to take on the, the thing of sugar finger. The cause is what happens if you don't want surgery and all the rest. On the 14th, award-winning author Marilyn Livingston, Dewey Decimated. On the 19th, In the Middle. On the 22nd, Tim Ahrens and Grand Game. On the 28th, award-winning author League Matthew Goldberg, Immortal Origins. And on the 29th, uh, Partners in Crime finishes me off with Dead in the Alley, and that's just September. And welcome to wow. September, everybody. Yeah, <laughs> I know. My, if anybody has a book that's coming out, talk to me in January because I'm done with the rest of the year. The last <laughs> one, I can't believe the last one for December is really big. He writes for Criminal Minds, CSI, Law and & Order, and all those types of programs, Monk, Diagnosis, Murder, D.P. Lyle, and he's going to do his new book, Tally Man. He's great. So That's great, tell us yeah. A, I can't believe it sometimes. Tell us about Chaya, and how did, why, why is she important? Why did he want to find her? Um, uh, which, which character? I'm sorry. 
I think it has. Oh, Chaya. Yeah. Chaya. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Chaya and Julia were sort of like sisters, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they were they were actually cousins, but they were the same about the same age, and they look an awful lot alike. And um, he, she's uh, Tamara's daughter, and so mm-hmm. he wants to find her and ask her about Julia and what um, why maybe she came to New York, what she had in mind, what was her whole Mm. uh, Spanish uh, identity all about and um, Chaya if if they can find her might Mm. have some clues to that. Okay, so there are two other characters Harish and Zahari, who are they? And what happens that finally unlocks the truth about Julia's death? How did you create the final scenes? Well, um, Ivan Karsh is another architect. Um, He trained Mm -hmm. at Yale at the same time Landis did and always was a little, seemed a little jealous of Landis, really. But Karsh started his own, he has his own large firm um, on the Upper East Side of New York, and um, he com- his firm competes against Landis and Porter and other architects for various commissions. Uh, they've been sort of rivals all along. I mean, these uh, architectural firms do have to compete. And he actually hired Landis's son, Hawk, for reasons Mm -hmm. of his own. We uh, aren't sure what that was, but uh, anyway, or Landis certainly isn't, because Hawk is not a very skilled architect, unlike Julia, and very new and also completely unreliable. So he's not sure why Karsh wanted him, but he figures if he hired him, he has some idea in mind. Um, You also asked about Yusuf Zardari, he's yeah. the man who's in charge of the whole conference on peace and understanding, mm. which Marjorie's gala is part of. Um, he's kind of an oily guy, and Landis doesn't much like him, but Marjorie seems to think well of him. But as they investigate uh, Landis's past and Marjorie and everything in uh about them trying to figure out these murders and whether there's really any terrorism, Zardari's name keeps cropping up. So that makes Landis even more reluctant to have many dealings with him. But um, um, there is a a, a, a a scene near the end of the book in which yeah. uh, Landis is Landis gets the details of what happened with respect to Julia, which he pretty much understands by this point, and some other things too. And um, he feels like he's better able to understand what the forces were that um, were put Julia, and in fact himself, at deadly risk. But that isn't the figuring out her fate isn't really the end of his troubles. No, it's not. It's the box of tissues, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I was like, that was a surprise ending, let me tell you. I was like, are you serious? So, is this a standalone? Are you going to bring him back? Uh, yes, for me it is a uh, standalone. There's really only so much murder and chaos that an architect can <laughs> plausibly deal with. But I am looking at Carlos, maybe, and yeah. a lot of my women readers are encouraging me to do, encouraging me to do that. So maybe. But um, I actually have a second thriller well along that's set in Rome, Italy, uh, okay. and it, feature, it features an American travel writer, a woman, who makes the mistake of eavesdropping on the wrong conversation and figuring out why the gangsters that she listened to are mm-hmm. so intent on silencing her reveals a very interesting plot. So oh, that's something to 
When is when is that supposed to come out? Uh, I'm looking for a publisher now. Well, do you look for um, regular publisher or self-published? That depends. Or independent publisher. They're all different, unfortunately. Um, I look for a small publisher that uh, is reputable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't self-publish. Um, it's too much work that I'm not well, interested I, in. I, at a yeah, different phase in my career, I might have felt differently. Well, I used to self-publish. I won't tell you who. The first time I did My Name is Bertha and my three Bertha series, they were absolutely disreputable, horrible. And then I was very lucky to find Robin at Fidelity Publishing, who mm-hmm. she doesn't do editing or stuff, but she does a phenomenal no. job self-publishing, and she doesn't charge a lot of money. money. No, no, not, not really. really. So mm. my, my, my phone is being... Um, if Randy could, could speak to all this, what lessons did he learn? Well, he learned a lot, actually. You know, there are some thrillers that you read that the character is a certain way on page one, and then on page 350 they're exactly the same. That's not yeah. true with him. He has a real uh, growth arc here and learns a lot. Not only does he have to find out that he can face dangers from mysterious forces outside himself, perhaps mm-hmm. uh, I I think maybe his biggest challenge is the internal one. As we talked mm-hmm. about in the beginning, he he does something that deeply disappoints him in himself, and he mm-hmm. has to regain his self-respect. Um, how he handles everything that's thrown at him in the whole rest of the book determines whether he can can do that or not. And what he learns about members of his team, especially the two not just Julia, but also Ty and Charleston, Mm -hmm. is that everybody has their trials. And in this case, everybody had their secrets. As much as he does rely on them, they're they're people, not machines. And though it's clear that they feel goodwill toward him, he, he comes to realize he can never take that for granted. That applies to DeShandra as well, his receptionist, mm-hmm. who's kind of quietly in the yeah. background throughout. Yeah, she's, she has a few secrets, and um, he wants to be sure that he treats her with the um, consideration that she has earned. Well, I know that as I'm reading, I think my speakerphone, I don't know what's going on, um, it's, it's understanding, understanding and trust and forgiveness. How does he deal with that? that? He, has he has to gain trust in himself, himself too. Well, he he does that by facing up to the difficulties that are he's been presented with and getting through all that. His trip to Spain helped him, his mental out, uh, outlook and everything. So how did you decide on the title of this book and the cover? Oh, thanks. Yeah, the, my publisher designed the cover. I think she did a really nice job. That's a, a scene of in Dubai. So that's, you know, very big buildings, and it sort of um, epitomizes architecture. The, the title comes from um, early on in the book, at some point in writing this, I realized that um, there was a lot of it was about courage and the kind of internal mm-hmm. and external physical courage and so forth that he had. And I realized I had an opportunity to sort of lay that out in a very early scene when uh, – Landis leaves Julia's apartment. He goes back to the dinner where he's supposed to be, and mm-hmm. it, it's a testimonial dinner, and the person making the speech is a good friend of his, and he outlines four different kinds of courage, uh, physical courage, which is mountain climbing and skiing and doing that, mm-hmm. um, mental courage, which is tackling issues that you, uh, new, new projects that you 
hadn't done before and showing that you can do it. Uh, emotional courage, which is dealing with feelings in an appropriate way. And then moral courage, which is what you do when nobody's watching. What, what are the, uh, When you behave in the right way because it's the right way, not because of any kind of external factor. And it well, isn't a brilliant speech, but... Uh, yeah. And it isn't even really clear whether Landis can take it in because he's pretty upset at that point, having just discovered Julia's body. But anyway, by the time the book is over, he has managed to show all kind, all four kinds of courage. And so that's where that title came from. What would have happened if, if Julia were alive and she didn't die? Would he have gone to her instead of Marjorie? I don't think we know because I didn't work all that out. <laughs> <laughs> so where can everybody find out you and your work? Well, I do have a website, which is V as in Victoria, Weisfeld.com, W-E-I-S, F as in Frank, E-L-D.com. Um, that talks about my novels and my short stories. I've had about 30 short stories Mm -hmm. published in various mystery publications. Um, It gives writing tips. It gives books, movie Mm -hmm. and theater reviews, and other stuff I find interesting and fun. So on the homepage um, of my website, your listeners can sign up for my quarterly newsletter, which I try to have include the best of the best, the best books I've read in the last six months, the best movies, and um, there's so many crime shows on TV sorting that out, what's worth watching and what isn't. So, um, yeah, the website is an ongoing way to mm. to see what I do. I generally post about four times a week. I unfortunately post every day a review. <laughs> and I can honestly say that I posted you on at 4 o'clock this morning and people read it. Hmm. It's scary. Yeah, I'm on just, re- just reviews with my site. And you never know who's going to read what. And Amazon has a review for five. Five stars. I put, put, put that, that as morning too. Oh, great. So, yeah, thank you so, so much. When, when the next one comes out, I hope you send it to me. And everybody, oh, yeah. <laughs> everybody well, have a great day. Thank you, Victoria. Everybody have, have a great day. And bye. Thank you. Happy reading.